0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast.
1: I'm Lucas.
2: I'm I'm Ethan, and welcome to all you new people. If you like what you hear, go ahead and press the subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday. And if you've been around for a while, make sure to hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Send us who you'd like us to talk about next. Uh, We're really good. We try to do once a month uh, listener requests. And if you are a lover of good music like we are, go to our link in the description to our patreon page you can become a patron you get episodes early and access to our special segment the bad music podcast which we do at the end of almost every episode um so check that out if you want to kind of be in the inner circle of good music but lucas before we get into what we're talking about today we have three pieces of news three big pieces of music news
0: yes i'm gonna start with my favorite thing first yep Um, so the rock and roll hall of fame is like my Oscars. It's I, and I'm really big fan of the Oscars, anything award season. I'm usually a a pretty big fan of, but for me, the rock and roll hall of fame is like one of the highlights of my year every year. I love it. I love seeing who's getting in. I love watching the induction ceremony. I love to read all the articles of what everyone's saying. I love to speculate on who's getting in, who's not getting in and um, and I love to complain about who didn't get in <laughs> because the Rock Hall has gotten it wrong many times, but uh, I, I still keep coming back to them. And um, this was 2020, just with most everything else, created a weird year because normally the nominees are revealed in October. They're announced like either end of January or beginning of February.
2: Did it just get postponed for, like, quarantine stuff or what?
0: Yeah, because what it is is normally the the actual induction ceremony is, like, in April. And because they couldn't have it, they kept pushing it back, hoping that they could do it live with the big audience. And as, you Mm -hmm. know, COVID kept getting worse, they kept pushing it back until finally they kind of admitted the fee was just like, okay, we're going to have to Do a uh, a virtual show. So I the virtual show the virtual show was amazing. I actually liked it more than the live show because (laughs) it was it was much it felt more like a documentary. Because cool because they didn't rely so much on the speeches. They crafted like these like ten minute band documentaries on each of the inductees and it was so cool. it was so fascinating like they would go through their whole career they would show their big hits they would show them playing it was all the people that were still alive doing interviews and you got to really understand um why they are in the hall of fame and uh, the only thing that i missed was that uh in the normal induction ceremony after they do their speeches they'll get up and play a few songs mm. and and a yeah, lot sure. of times that's that's a big opportunity for bandmates that have been falling out that haven't played together for forever to kind of like have a chance to play again um it doesn't always work out like steve perry didn't rejoin journey a couple years ago whenever they um they got inducted but it was kind of it always is really fun to kind of see like is Steve Perry going to go on stage with them yeah um and so it's it's really cool to kind of see reunions happen like um i want to say that um no i don't think Dave Mustaine was at Metallica's induction like he didn't play with no. them but it's it's kind of like those things are the things that can potentially happen
1: no, but uh, and, Cliff Burton's father was there, and that was that was one yes. of the big things that I noticed. Uh-huh. Uh,
0: one a, a, a big thing that happened, like say when um, Nirvana got inducted. There's 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 been this very notorious, long-standing feud between Dave Grohl and Courtney Love, who is uh, Kurt Cobain's widow. They have famously hated each other ever, even before Kurt died. And they had a they had a pretty touching moment where they forgave each other and made up on the stage while they were giving their speeches. And so it's like you know you have opportunities like that where it's like this is this is pretty uh, significant.
2: So so who so
0: who got in? So uh, right before oh oh so last year last year was um, it was the Doobie Brothers, Whitney Houston. Notorious B.I.G., Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, and I know I'm forgetting someone. Uh, I think that no, that's not it. I'm I'm blanking on who the last one Google was. It. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to see if I could go off of the off the top of my mind. Um. And then I know that uh, they, they also will induct uh, every year a couple of people that are non-musician that are more industry people, like oh, cool. managers and producers. And, and so uh, Irving Azoff, who was the Eagles manager, got inducted. And John Landau, who we talked a lot about in the Bruce Springsteen episode, he got inducted as well. And Bruce himself got to induct him in. Don Henley got to induct Irving Azoff. It was pretty cool. You mentioned T Rex and
1: oh, and T Rex. I remember you made that big deal about that uh, 20th century boy. I know.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. T Rex got. I can't believe I didn't include them.
1: All right. Well, that completes that.
0: So it was a, it was a, it was a really great um, ceremony, and so, but because it came on in October, it threw everything off. And so, like, I kept googling. I was just like, when are they going to announce the next nominees? Because I got to know. Because normally by this time I know. And like a couple days ago, I woke up and I had an email saying the 2021 nominees are in. And holy crap! What a selection. (laughs) So they we've got six. So
2: nominations into the Hall of Fame and then people that actually make it into the Hall of Fame how does that work
0: so in order to be nominated it has to be there's only one qualification and it's that it has to be 25 years since your first release and it's first okay. significant release so it can't be like something you released on your own it's got to be you know something that was had a wide distribution and and you know no no underground demo tapes or anything like that so and that's literally it because obviously there's no genre restrictions there's nothing like that it's just you know you Mm -hmm. it just has to be 25 because you have to have had enough time for your impact to be felt in the music world so um there are 16 nominations this year they don't like have a set number of how many people to nominate they don't have a set number of how many people get in it changes every year um, you kind of you know I've seen them induct as few as five I've seen them induct as many as eight so it's just you kind of you know I don't think they would do more than nine and I don't think they do less than five so you kind of you don't know you can't beg on just okay we got to pick you know five people or six people I don't know but we got 16 nominees this year and this is maybe the most diverse group Of nominees I've ever seen, they—it's almost like it was very intentional that they really covered the board here. But so many people, there were a couple of people I saw on the list. I was just like, "How are these people not in?" I didn't—I didn't (laughs) know that they weren't in. Yeah. Um. So let's let's talk about the nominees. So, the one that I knew for sure was going to happen was Foo Fighters. This is their first year of eligibility because it has now been it's now been 25 years since that first record came out and this this to me feels like the most sure thing that's going to happen i could i could probably bet my money on two artists specifically getting in and one of them is foo fighters all right i mean they are the major band of the last 25 years as far as rock and roll <laughs> oh yeah is concerned. oh yeah and and the academy loves dave and dave loves the academy so, or not the the Rock Hall? I keep saying Academy, like the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's pretty much the same thing to me. So I'm, and he's. This will be his second time to be inducted. If oh he wow! Gets in. that's true. And that's a very that's a because he's been inducted as Nirvana. So this would be an exclusive group he's in of being inducted twice. Um, we've got the Go Go's, which are an '80s female pop group that was pretty big and the big thing that was the deal about them was that they were the first all-female group that wrote and played their own songs to have a number one record so you know in the in the early to mid 80s they were a pretty big deal i i definitely think that they deserve the nomination that's and the induction you're
1: surprised they're not in
0: no, I'm not surprised that they're I, not in. Yeah. But at the same time, they they belong right. there. Is,
2: um, I'm
0: surpri- I guess I'm surprised that the Foo Fighters aren't well, in. Well, this again, is this their is first their very year. this is the first year they even can be in. Oh, okay. that's what I'm saying. This is their first year of eligibility because it's been 25 years now since that first album came out. So this is the absolute earliest they could be nominated. Yeah. Um, the other artists where it's their first year of eligibility is Jay-Z. Which,
3: mm-hmm. Ethan, I know
0: you're going to be pulling for, because you're a big Jay-Z fan. Yeah. <laughs> I think he has a pretty good to chance no to least. get in as well. Um, then well, we it depends have... on who else is on the list. Yeah, that's true. We do have another rapper on the list, and that's LL Cool J. Mm. Hey! Wow. wow. But, I don't feel optimistic about him because this is actually the fifth time he's been nominated and hasn't gotten in yet. And usually that's never a good sign. Mm-hmm. There's, There are many, many artists that have been nominated like seven, eight, nine times and haven't gotten in. It's, it's one of those things that once that starts happening, it kind of starts to feel like you're never going to get in because there's a reason why you keep getting nominated. Like you, People like you enough, but not enough to ever get you across the finish line. Um, the zombies were that way for a while until they got in a couple years ago. Um, but it's pretty rare for that to happen, I, to, I to get nominated LL, tons of times.
2: I don't think LL Cool J is as prolific as Jay-Z.
0: No, he's, he's kind of more had an impact on pop culture in general, especially when he moved to acting. Um, but, I mean, he was very important in the early stages of hip-hop. From what I was reading, he was kind of the first major solo rap star because kind of during his time was more the groups like um, – like uh, oh, why am I forgetting their name? Uh, like Public Enemy and yeah. um, N.W.A. Like those were yeah. kind of more the rap – artists that were big in the late 80s early 90s and it was kind of you know LL Cool J was the first to be like a solo star but at the same time I feel like his his career wasn't as long like once you get to the late 90s like I feel like really he was not an important figure anymore as far as in the music world that's when he switched to to acting I could be wrong. I'm I'm going off of my very limited Eloquence
3: knowledge. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um also we've got two people that have been so Dave Grohl is actually one of three people nominated that have already made it in once in another place. Um the other two is uh Carol King who has been inducted as a songwriter but not as a performer. Oh um carol carol king had one of the biggest albums of all time with her 71 album tapestries like until until adele came around that was the best-selling album by a female solo artist all right so um so that's kind of one of the ones where i've been reading a lot just like how is she not in as a performer she's just in as a songwriter specifically as a duo Mm. with her husband Mm. And the third one in this group is also someone that is in with her husband, but not as a solo artist, and that's Tina Turner, uh. which that was that was the one the most that I looked at. I was just like, she's not in? That, yeah,
1: that doesn't make sense. Wow. Well, but no, she's in.
0: So she's in, she's in as the duo Ike and Tina Turner, but that – her solo career far eclipses that time. Like she was bigger as a solo artist than she was as part of that duo, and so it's just it's crazy to me that her as a solo performer is not in. I think that next to Foo Fighters, she's the most surefire uh, one to get in, and probably Carol King right behind her, because they're just they're titans of the of the industry. Um, Some other bands that have been nominated, uh, Rage Against the Machine got their third nomination, which I hope they get in. Uh, The New York Dolls, which is another early 70s glam band, has been nominated. It's the first time they've been nominated. Um, They were more of an influential band rather than a successful band they uh they were big in the underground glam scene but really kind of their biggest stamp is that they set a lot of the groundwork for punk in the mid to late 70s but they only made two albums and again they're kind of more of a um more of an influencer rather than like oh look at this band that was very successful um you've got a, uh, you've got a performer that I've never even heard of before named Fila Kuti. Oh, man. And he's, a, he's an African artist. He's, From what I was reading, he is the uh, creator of Afrobeat, which is a type Ooh. of music that I've never even listened to before. But he apparently was one of the people to help bring world music to a wider audience but from everything i'm reading everyone's just like we've never heard of this guy (laughs) but so everyone's saying probably of of anyone else he's got the least likely chance of getting in but he could also be an insane wild card he could be someone that they put him in kind of like as a statement to say we're going to start looking at more international artists yeah uh kate bush has been nominated this is her second nomination i believe um she is a very eclectic um uh, very artistic she's kind of like bjork in the 70s to where it's you know she's got a very unconventional voice she's she's like pop but at the same time she's experimental kind of has a very rabid fan base but never got super huge commercial acclaim um you've got deon warwick who is like one of the original pop divas. She was kind of right there along Aretha Franklin, but instead of, you know, how Aretha was a big, powerful voice, she was much more of a a ballad singer with a very um, smooth voice. But she was, I mean, she was one of the biggest divas of her time in the 60s and 70s. And she's also uh, Whitney Houston's cousin. Wow, hmm. so crazy! Yeah, you got that going for her. Uh, this is the first time she's been nominated. You've got Devo, who is a uh, um, a new wave group, very art rock, very um, brought a lot of electronic elements to the eighties. Kind of, they were one of the. Yeah, they were one of the bands that helped bridge the 70s and 80s, where you've got the, the the late 70s new wave, where it kind of was born out of this college rock, very artsy, very experimental, yet still kind of pop, you know, Talking Heads, the police, the cars, and they kind of bridged it with really bringing a lot of the electronic elements, a lot of stuff from Kraut Rock, and they were, they were a bridge band. They kind of helped create what the sound of the 80s were but they also didn't have a huge career they had a couple of huge hits and um, they're kind of again they're like the New York Dolls except for they had a couple bigger hits than New York Dolls did but not a massive career um, I don't know if I'm missing anyone because there's one last one the one that I am the most hyped about that I wanted to save for last because I'm going to there's, I literally this there's is four, four more. There's four more. Okay. Um trying to think cuz I want to I want to save the I want to save my my big one for last. You have Mary uh, J Blige. Oh, uh, Mary J Blige, of course. Yes. Her first nomination. Um she I think is probably not going to get in yet. I feel like there's more um there's more legendary acts that I feel like they need to get in. But, uh, you know, I think that she's someone that will get in pretty quickly. Uh, Shaka Khan, she's one of those people that has been nominated <laughs> like nine times now and just never can seem to get in. Um, Todd Rundgren, he's someone else that has been nominated a lot of times recently and just doesn't seem to have the uh, the push to get himself over the finish line. He's he's kind of a an art rock 70s guy. And then the big one for me, when I saw the email, they were one of the first names that I saw on there, and I literally pooped my pants when I saw it. Woo! Iron Maiden has been nominated.
1: Let's go! About <laughs> time! Is this,
0: is this their first year? First year to be nominated. They've been eligible for like almost 15 years yeah. now never, how been nominated. never been nominated because the rock hall hates heavy metal and I hate them for it but at the same time I know that once they start finally inducting these metal oh, bands yeah. in it's, it's going to be glorious cascade. there's only there, there's only two metal bands in the hall right now and that's Metallica yep. and Sabbath That's which it. I mean if you're going to pick two bands um, yeah I mean those are the Two ones you would go to first, but um, like even nomination wise, Judas Priest has been nominated twice, haven't gotten in yet, and Motorhead's been nominated once. Has Rush been. But Rush, yeah, Rush is in,
1: yeah. I mean,
0: they're not heavy like that metal, kind of but like they're
1: not heavy they're metal, but they,
3: if that's what you mean,
0: they helped. They helped finally start getting prog bands into the hall. Um, who who votes? You know, they were who nominates people. It's it's a in the same way the Academy Awards does. It's this uh, it's this voting body. It's we don't know really who's in it. It's mostly people in the industry. I want to say there's like 900 people that vote, and there's a there's a fan vote where you can vote for your. Um, for your picks and the top five of the fan vote, get one vote. One added vote to in the nine hundred. Yeah. And it really doesn't make much of a difference, but it's still fun to kind of see which bands, because you can also see who's winning in the standings and kind of see which, what are the bands that the people are really pushing Man. for? Sounds kind of rigged
2: to me. So Lucas, who do you, who do you think, who who are your? Because I remember we did this like two years ago, me and you. Who do you? Think yeah, could, we did. They could let six people in. Who do you think they'd let in? I've I actually do have this
0: written down. Yeah, I know. Um,
2: I know you. Yeah, you do.
0: <laughs> okay, and I and I had picked six. Um, I think it's going to be Foo Fighters.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I think Iron Maiden is going to make it in. I think Jay-Z getting in. Mhm. Tina Turner. Mm. Rage Against the Machine and Devo. Devo, that's I think so. I think that I think they're going to be the wild card pick. You kind of always have to have there's always one that gets in that you're just like I'm surprised that they made it in. And I think that, that that's my wild card pick. Is it the other ones I feel safer.
1: Uh, mm. Okay.
2: <laughs> man.
0: So, Dionne Warwick. You I'm, guys
1: can. Uh... I would make a prediction. Yeah. But I honestly don't follow these things, so I don't know how the trend goes. But I think. <laughs> you Maybe... guys
0: should send me your, your picks after, uh, after
2: I, we record I them. We can I talk agree. about them
0: next time. I
2: think that. Oh, man. Shaka Khan, though. The or thing sorry, that may, hurts
0: her. MJ, MJ I just think her competition's too tough this year. I I, I think, think she's that someone I that's pick... gonna get in in a couple years, just not yet. I think I would pick Filicudi over yep, Devo
1: I as would my too, wild card because, like, that's a di- that's a completely different.
3: Yeah, it's exactly. like a statement.
1: It's like,
0: yeah, and do you and do you know what the do you know what the crazy thing is? Hmm. Fila Cootie is by and far leading the family. Wow. Really? Like, it's not even close. Okay. With Tina Turner at number two, Foo Fighters number three, Iron Maiden fourth, and Carol King at fifth.
1: Tina Turner's number two? Okay. I guess because you get all uh-huh. the rock guys to split their vote between Foo Fighters and Iron Maiden. So that makes sense
0: yeah those are those are kind of like more than any those your two mm-hmm. rock and roll groups uh i mean foo fighters they're gonna get in
1: there's no that's yeah, that's they're... the one
0: i feel the safest betting on with tina mm-hmm. turner being right
1: behind it there's no way the foo fighters don't get in because um you it's very rare that you'll yeah. be in a circle of four or five people and not one of them is a super fan of foo fighters you know, especially especially among people my age, yeah, it's just, it...
0: and especially because, like, Dave Grohl introduced the uh, the <sighs> ceremony last year, like that he's that was the first thing you saw when you when it started was him standing in a room and and talking about how important the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, like he's just he's one of those guys that he has been like he's like their spokesperson at this <laughs> point. <laughs> I feel like it would be insulting to him for them <laughs> to the not induct him in. Like it's it's one it's of those like ones where I would be like, yeah, I'd I'd be thinking I was just like, did Dave Grohl offend anyone? Like that's what I would be thinking. So what? You because Foo th- so
2: Fighters are a guaranteed in. Do you think Iron Maiden is a guaranteed in?
0: No, but uh, they're one of those people. Even if my brain maybe tells me they still might not get in, I can mm-hmm. never bet against my boys. I could never, in good conscience, say that I didn't root for them to get in. Yeah,
2: you didn't put your money on Iron Maiden when you had the chance. They're,
0: they're one of they're one of my pillars. Yeah, I have to support my pillars. They're the last of my pillars to get to not be in yet. Oh, so you have the the three three of the four are in the Rock Hall. <laughs> Iron Maiden's the last one I need, and you know just. There's a part of me that's skeptical because I've been burned by their treatment of metal bands before. (laughs) But last year, the Rock Hall did find itself under new management, and he said that their goal is to start being more inclusive on who they induct. Last year was very much a statement year. Because there were a lot of big time regular rock and roll acts that did not get in. There was only one real rock and roll act that got in last year and that was the Doobie Brothers. Everyone else was not mm-hmm. really in the world of rock and roll. It was, it was hip hop and electronic and industrial and pop and you know just a lot of things besides rock and roll and the Doobie Brothers were kind of like you know the old the old white dude rock group that got in, that is Mm -hmm. normally the majority of people that get in. So it felt like last year was there. And I think that this year they're going to make, they're going to kind of go the same way. They're going to be widening. And I think that that going to work in Iron Maiden's favor. I think that they're going to recognize, hey, heavy metal is underrepresented and they, the metal bands always do well in the fan votes. It's what the people want. I think that that's what, is giving me hope about iron maiden yeah but you know at the same time i've i've been hurt many times before (laughs) so it's going to be it's going to be very interesting they're going to announce who gets in in may and then it's it's looking like the new normal is going to be this cycle because they're going to do the induction again in October. They're they're trying really hard to make it a uh, uh, a like how it used to be. Who knows? Again, Corona has continued to defy expectations on what normal is. But if if they do, it's looking like this might be the new schedule of, you know, February announce n- nominees, May induct them in october have the ceremony
2: i have a question about someone that may or may not be in the rock and, Hole, hall, rock and roll hall of fame
0: yeah is marilyn
2: manson in the rock and roll hall of fame
0: no he yep. is not and he never will be yeah <laughs> especially not after yep. what has happened recently <laughs> you need to catch me. um yeah so i won't spend a whole lot of time on this because we need to get into <laughs> what we're going to talk about <laughs> This episode, we've we've spent what is it like, yeah. like thirty five minutes on this topic, uh, but this is this is one of the bigger rock stories. I think that's going to be of this whole year, and that's um, all of the abuse allegations that have come out against Marilyn Manson. Um, I mean, I don't want to be so brutal as to say like <laughs> I'm not surprised because. I don't want to be that person that like sees someone that is in a, you know, that makes dark music and, and because there's a lot of those guys, mm-hmm. that's just, that's just the music they make. But at the same time, man, people have Marilyn Manson has always been one of the most controversial and disturbing figures to ever be in any form of music. And it started with Evan Rachel Wood, who's a very prominent actress. Um, they were engaged for about a year at the end of the 2000s, which that's – I would have never thought they would have been a couple, and they, um, they broke up, and she had before in court proceedings named an unidentified abuser, and then um, it was actually literally the day my daughter was born. She announced and said, hey, Marilyn Manson has been abusing me. And four other women have supported her in the initial push. And then since then, literally like twice a day, I'm seeing more articles of more people coming out and saying, yep, it's all true. By the way, he also did this, also did that. And like it's some of the most wow. disturbing stuff I've ever read in my life. Like like certain points where it mm. t- turns into literal torture. And I don't use that like in a connotative sense, like actual like he had a torture room. Yeah, that's up. And um and like, you know, he was he was doing some terrible things. Um and his label has dropped him, his manager has dropped him, he had um some T V shows that he was gonna be acting on that have cut him. Like hit Everyone has dropped him wow. like a bad habit. And I've, I've, it's been a long time since we've seen, like, it, it reminds me of that, of the time in the 20, it was like in 2017 when Me Too initially started. Mm-hmm. And you just, and you had these people that were immediately, like, one day they're, you know, have great careers, and then the next, mm-hmm. like, it's over, it's done. Since then, things have come out here and there, but it's – this is one of the swiftest falls from power that I've seen, especially that that movement hadn't really touched the music world. It mainly stayed in Hollywood and TV, and I was kind of surprised that more musicians didn't experience that, but like – and this isn't just, you know, um, oh – you know he he had sex with someone under well not, not, again to to downplay that is is not what I'm trying to say, but like this is some of the most messed up. This goes beyond even that like he was brainwashing these women, he was locking them in rooms for days at a time, he was threatening to kill their family and friends. He was obviously, you know, physically abusing them, sexually abusing them, um, giving them sedatives to knock them out so that way he could have sex with them while they were unconscious. So pretty yeah. much raping them and uh, just all kinds of some of the most messed up things you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it's messed up. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was someone that I have liked some of his music. There's some of the stuff that I'm very wary to get into because of its subject matter. Because of, you know, just some of my personal beliefs. And But at the same time, there are songs that I was just like, I really like this song. And I had thought about maybe doing an episode someday. But... I can't after everything that's happened. Yeah. There's 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 just no way we can have an episode of talking about, you know, how great this artist is after they've done some right. some of that stuff. So, so yeah, um definitely probably won't see be seeing him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame unless the most insane uh series of events happens to where they we find out that it wasn't true, which I would say is a ninety nine point nine percent chance of not happening. The 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 evidence continues to pile on him daily, to where it's just like there's no way that every all these people are conspiring against him.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It just is just is impossible, even though he claimed it is.
3: <sighs> yeah.
0: So. Um. Yeah. I. I mean. I don't want to be too down on this, just because you know. It's more. Yeah. It's more fun to be yeah. fun yeah. And, and have a good time. Oh so, uh, Korea died.
1: You going to bring it back down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was our third piece of news.
2: Yeah.
3: Yes, it is.
0: Again, we won't. We won't stay on it too long. But it's. It is kind of crazy that the week that our Miles Davis episode is out, where we talk about him. Is the yeah, we talked uh, about we him for a long he time? He passed away. After
2: hours. I was pretty much showing. Yes, Grant. we
0: did. I was like going through some
2: songs. And I was like, "Oh man, I, I got into this song and this song and this song," <laughs> and then Grant. Uh,
1: yeah, oh yeah, we don't have to talk about that. You don't have to talk about that. But it was purely coincidental, I promise. And you know, we started off this news segment at a really good, like high point. And then Ethan was just like, you know who's not going to be in the Hall of Fame? And then from that point, it was just the complete opposite. (laughs) That was the turning point of this conversation.
2: So now that we're out of the news, Lucas, what are we talking about today?
0: Yes. uh, By the way, those of you that are tuning in, we don't normally take this much time. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
0: We We also have not uh recorded in a couple of weeks we had had some episodes stockpiled so just also yep, just yep. a lot of stuff happened since we last recorded mm-hmm. i was like we need to talk about some of this um lucas's baby is healthy it's been one of the cr- yes i had a yep. i had a baby that's why we took a couple weeks off but you know baby is that's awesome good. she's beautiful she's a great sleeper it's it's wonderful life um but it's time now to return to our little spin-off series that we have that we do on the last episode of every month. And that's our History of Music episode. Yeah. Something that we have had a lot of fun doing. And I'm really glad that not only that we've enjoyed to do that, but that it's continued to be um, a successful – Epis- they've continued to be successful episodes for us. You guys apparently have also been interested in it. So um, we're going to continue doing it. It's, it's going to continue right. to be more and more fun the further through time that we go because we're continuing to see the evolution of music. We're continuing to see ideas that we have and our uh, modern ears to continue to be introduced and expounded upon. And it's time for us to finally step out of the medieval period. We were there for, Mm -hmm. you know, about four episodes, three or four. So it's been a while. And we are now in the Renaissance. This is kind of, the Renaissance is like the last time period where we're going to be talking about music and composers that most everyone is not going to be immediately familiar with. Because after the Renaissance period, which we'll actually probably spend mm-hmm. about three or four episodes here, but after that is the Baroque period, and that's when we start to get into, I guess you could say, almost in a way, modern music. This is this is the Baroque yeah. period is when it really kind of all starts to happen. It's you know that's when you start to get the, the composers that everyone knows, and the, the styles, and even the the music that you know, not even your hardcore music historian Mm -hmm. would recognize. And so, but the Renaissance is still a big stepping point, not just in music, but just in the world as a whole. So what time period are we talking about? This is, so the Renaissance is the most part agreed to be mid 1400s to the late 1500s. That's kind of like the time period that if it, it fluctuates like there's not like a definitive mm-hmm. starting date you know on you know there's not a yeah. as easy of a a year as say like the end of the Roman Empire where you know you have this this very specific moment when the Roman Empire was fragmented uh but fourteen twenty seems to be. If you had to commit yourself to a year, that seems to be the best possible year to do it. Really, what the Renaissance was, and we talked a little bit about what was starting to lead to the Renaissance in our previous music history episode about the Troubadours, where we have this idea of humanism Mm -hmm. starting to um, become the predominant way of thinking throughout the modern world. Um, specifically in Europe, the Western world. Uh, you had the, the writings of Petrarch and Dante that were starting to push towards not completely relying on religious viewpoints, but starting to um, embrace the, the greatness of man. And that's what the whole idea of the Renaissance ended up really becoming, was the celebration of man it's not the rejection of the church medieval religion mainly focused on the worthlessness and the scum of humanity about how wretched we are about how unworthy we are and you know that's not completely theologically incorrect but also like there was no there was nothing to celebrate not even Anything good whatsoever. You couldn't even rejoice in how, uh, in the doctrine, man is uh, <laughs> redeemed and made worthy. It was this constant, you know. Really, it was it was almost an enslavement. You you in, you give them no hope. The only hope you have is that someday you'll go to heaven. You cannot expect any worldly pleasure or any worldly goodness. And the Renaissance started to challenge that they saw instead of man as god's mistake as man is god's greatest creation and so it's not this rebellion against religion but rather this different viewpoint on on man's worth now of course you you start to you can always take that too far and you know that's eventually kind of where it started to go and to where I say, well, if man's so great, then why do we need God? And that's kind of once you start to get to the eighteen and 1900s, that starts to become more of the mindset. But in the Renaissance period, the church is still a major part of the society, but the idea mm-hmm. of what the man can achieve is changing. And this is also coupled with a rediscovering of the ancient world, specifically Greece and Rome. Discovering of the uh, of the old arts, of of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, of the great thinkers of that time period, the discoverance or the reemergence of Homer and Virgil and um, and Cicero, the great writers of that time, of the of the sculptures, of the art, of
2: of everything. Because I remember us talking about in with the Greece episode in the Roman episode how culturally like we were so far with music and then once the pretty much after Rome it kind of all just like went away yeah and so this was like a rediscovery of where we were (laughs)
0: Uh uh-huh it's almost like now once this happens this there's this immediate the next hundred years is this immense game of Catching up, where all of a sudden now we're we're almost back to where we left off, at the height of the ancient world, because not only did they seek to emulate the ancient world, but then they sought to outdo it. Yeah, they mm-hmm. wanted to build the biggest cathedrals. The they mm-hmm. wanted to write the best literature. Let's talk about, you know the we often would do with these other time periods we were talking about what were the significant people mm-hmm. of that time and it was kind of hard to do but once you get to the renaissance you have no mm-hmm. shortage of the greats in art this is the time of leonardo da vinci and michelangelo um this is the time of christopher columbus and uh magellan and all of the great explorers uh, in theater, this is the time of Shakespeare. In uh in science, this is the time of Galileo wow, and that's Copernicus. A lot. Um Yeah, like in literally in any field that you can look at, mm-hmm. the greats are are yeah. presented here, except for in music. Why? Although the the, the composers are great, they're just not yeah. they don't have the, the name recognition that these other people have because really music the music of the renaissance still has a lot to do because again the fact that the that the church had such a strong control of music it had a mm-hmm. a slower evolution but we're seeing the final stages of complete church control of music and really once we get to the renaissance there's no more mm-hmm. hiding by the secular artists there's in fact start the quite the opposite starts to happen and what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to talk specifically about the catholic mass and we talked about this a little bit in our um in our uh in our high middle ages episode mm-hmm. in the religious music one where we had a mass show, and we had the three pieces. You know how we talked about the mass is composed yeah. of the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei. That's what the mass is. And if you noticed in our songs, that we're going to be looking at it's in order. We're actually going to be looking at an entire mass oh, just that's by cool. different people I'm at different it times. Together now, it's in order, and that's you know there's. At this point, before, there was five parts, and at this point, now there's six. Oh, so and so nice. it made it a nice, tidy six like we normally do. I know. Um, so that's what we're going to be focusing on in this episode. We're going to talk about other musical um, styles in other episodes. We're gonna, we'll talk about madrigals and motets. Um, but we're going to be – this This was still the the most – predominant form of music during the renaissance although this would be the last era where a religious form of music was the predominant form and really to say that this was purely religious is not completely true because once the church began to lose its um its power it Realized that it it had to adapt, and what they allowed composers to do is to take the melodies and tunes of secular songs and use them for their religious ceremonies. The words had to be uh religious. In fact, with mass, so the words will always be the same. You're not going to ever have any divergence
1: of words. It's always the is same. what it is. It's the first. But kid rather, song.
2: wow. just roasted an entire (laughs) age
0: yeah you could say that so they're (laughs) almost yeah uh you you almost have these like their cover songs reimaginings but again they're they're taking the melodies of these secular Mm -hmm. songs almost like the pop songs of their time period and putting them to religious practice so this was very generous of the catholic church to do this is something that would have never happened right. in the medieval period. So you can see that there's this there's this loosening of the grip. But unfortunately what would happen is there would be this little incident that would happen in the 15th century called <laughs> the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther this is another common yeah. figure of the Renaissance. <laughs> and this – um, You could argue maybe one of the most important uh, events in church history. It's when really the Catholic Church lost a large majority of its power because a lot of people broke off and joined, um, joined Martin Luther's viewpoint of how the church should be. And when that happened, they were mm-hmm. looking for reasons like why did this happen? and they saw this this trend of using secular songs and they were just like oh no we can't do that anymore this is this this surely is the reason why the oh. the protestants have left the church it's because it's because you got all this all this worldly music in church we will have none of this and so then it went back to being much more traditional you're not going to see many Catholic churches performing in this style anymore. Although, again, it's it's up to the discretion of that church. But it became much less popular. And really, when that happened, that was kind of like the last thing to make religious music not the dominant right.
1: uh, now, type of music anymore. There's an interesting change as well that goes along with the Protestant Reformation that's the advent of the printing press and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, yes the visual arts you know um, in particular began to advance so rapidly is because you can engrave your art and then distribute it you know all the way to India you know there are some copies of old um, Renaissance artwork engravings that are all over the world you know, the same exact engraving just all over the world. And it, it's very hard to do that with music because, I mean, you don't have CDs, right? And yes, we have f- forms of written music, but you can't hand that to a non-musician and then look yeah. at it and go, wow, what a moving piece of music. Uh, but you also have this interesting change that we actually hold to today in general is, is the idea that, artists are um, more inspired instead of being like a public servant where it's like you are writing music for the church or you're painting this for your patron or whatever you are an artist because you have this skill and you desire to you know connect with some higher calling or some flow state and you enjoy creating art and that in and of itself is something to pursue and the competition that you'd have between artists um, and I'm talking a lot about the visual arts I'm in a in a art history class right now that's going through this period um, but I'm sure it applies to music as well is that the competition between you know artists would be not as much who can you know write a better song for like the the church yeah. that they're working for, more who can like write the better song. Period. Right, and so there are, there are instances of like, um, mm-hmm. I think it was it was either Michelangelo or Raphael was like painting a depiction of the other person in one of their very famous um, pieces, as in like a very negative light to kind of like poke fun at each other. And so I can imagine that it, that sort of mindset, there was like musician rivalry as well. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that would be the same thing.
0: Um, not as much, although there was definitely, um, it was less about, artists being in competition with each other but rather schools of music being in competition with each other so you had these different and still at this point most of them are in france although you are starting to get some in the netherlands and some in england but france was still the stronghold of where all the great music was being written but you did have these different schools that were kind of like competing with each other but again that couldn't be completely overt because you know you uh, don't want true. to be chasing glory while writing the lord's music but you know there is there was definitely these these different schools that were trying to do different things but let's also talk about what musical innovations are being pushed during this time period and we're going to we're going to see if you guys were picking up on this as you were listening to the songs so the big um innovation in religious music in the middle ages was this idea of having multiple melodic mm-hmm. lines going at the same time where you were you had when you started off you had plain chant everyone is singing the same thing there's no harmonies there's no uh contrasting melodies mm-hmm. everyone is singing in unison exactly you get to the high middle ages and you mm-hmm. have multiple voices singing and but they're not necessarily singing together. It's more of you have these intersecting right. lines, but they're each independent of each other. Once you get to the Renaissance, rather than trying to make the music super complex as far as intersecting, we now start to have yep. harmonies
1: really I, being I used. Did. I did, I and it's, it's intentional up on this. harmonies now there's an there's a deeper understanding of chord structure and um resolution that we still hold to today that the the different tropes here Mm -hmm. there are some there are some points in this set and i'll try to point them out when i get there but it sounded like it sounded like a modern movie soundtrack at some points where I'm like, you could put this in interstellar and I wouldn't even notice, (laughs) you know, and that I, Mm -hmm. I've said that, you know, on almost every episode that we're getting closer and closer to where we are today. And like, we still are, you know, there's no, you're right. And how you said a couple episodes ago, that it would really speed up as we got to the the Renaissance. And it has sped up. And this is the first episode. So, so it's not immediately clear, mm-hmm. but it, there's a change.
0: Yes. And uh, really what you can hear this is this is the be kind of the the groundwork for all vocal music moving forward. Because any vocal music that is made now, like, like you said, in movie scores or in, you know, in symphonic works, like this is where it all draws from. This idea of these multiple voices working together rather than mm-hmm. working independent but simultaneously. Everything is relying on each other even though this music is still quite musically complex and Mm -hmm. dense, it feels more natural now. And, um, it's really quite beautiful. This is, this is, this is some of the most beautiful music I've ever listened to. And that, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's our big, um, Innovation, along with the idea of pulling melodies from other songs and reworking them, it's it would be uh, the same as you know you've when you get into the classical period, you'll have uh, what's called variations, where people composers will take an already completed yep, like a work of music and they'll make their version of it. Yeah. Uh, a retelling, <laughs> a re- a cover. It's it's literally a cover song, and this would be the first um, time that something like this is being done on such a overt. In fact, what it was called <laughs> was called a parody mass, which parody did not mean what it means now, where it's meant to be um, poking fun, but rather it is. It is reusing something but then putting a new spin to it. In this instance taking a secular song grabbing the melody and putting the words that are always used in the mass. Some composers were even as (laughs) bold as to use their own secular songs. So you know, that's that's very much a statement of arrogance. It's not only am I going to take a, a, a hit popular song, but I'm going to do my song that I wrote for uh, secular use and use it in the church. And the mass during this time period was seen as a composer's greatest challenge. This was the symphony of its time, where there was no work of music taken more seriously and more reverently than the mass. Not just because of the content, like, because of the seriousness of it, but also because a full mass was usually about a 35-minute piece of work. Sometimes longer, depending on how much the composer wanted to do. And Before, in the Middle Ages, it was very common for multiple composers to um, write individual segments, and then you Frankenstein it together. And because of that, there usually wasn't a lot of consistency. We talked about how Michelle was the first composer to ever completely write a Mass from start to finish as just one composer. Now, once we get into uh, the Renaissance... Not only is that like considered a requirement, but they start to treat them like multi-movement symphonies where you have these themes that are constantly coming in and evolving and pushing the music forward. They're not just like Mm -hmm. songs on an album that are independent of each other. They're like songs in a concept album where themes are being reused and expounded upon. that begs the
1: question. For our six songs, why did we not choose all six songs from the same mass if it would make more musical sense to pick just one?
0: Well, because I wanted to uh, show the evolution of the mass over time. Not only are these pieces... In order of where they uh, appear in the mass, but they're also in chronological order. We're actually going to be moving through breath. the breadth of the Renaissance up to the end. Right. Now, the last two are from the same composer, um, but you know we're starting off the first piece. The Kiri, is from the beginning of the Renaissance,
1: and the Agnus Dei is it from does the aim of the Renaissance. To sound more sophisticated, the closer you get towards the end. Mm Hmm. And so I wanted to get a breadth of the
0: entirety of the Renaissance, and also it'll give allow us to talk about who are the major composers rather than just zeroing in on. Maybe we could have that for a. Because if we were going to zero in on, if we were going to zero in on just one, then we would just make an episode about them.
3: (laughs) Who's to say we won't? Yeah.
0: Who's to say we won't in a later episode? If you, if you listeners just see an episode <laughs> randomly pop up of some really old dude, then that's probably what it is.
3: <laughs> okay. So,
0: that's going to be the lens that we're going to be looking at this. You guys have I anything else you wanted to bring to the table? I'm in the right Same. place. All right. we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that are going to define the Renaissance Catholic Mass. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking a long time about the renaissance and specifically the catholic mass of the renaissance now this is one of our music history episodes so if you're not following our music history um spinoff series you'll definitely want to check out the other episodes at the end the last episode of every month um but for this segment we are talking about the six songs for this episode so if you're new you're probably wondering why do we have to talk about six songs we just talked all about the music well lucas what is the purpose of this segment?
0: So this is where we get to actually get into the nitty gritty of what this music sounded like during this time period. So these six songs, I I explained it uh, in the last segment, just, you know, it's with these episodes, it's not going to be the same function or the same objective as I would in a normal episode. In this one, it's, it's more about giving us a great, broad picture of what this musical style was like during this time period. So, like I said, these six songs are going to be detailing the six different parts of the Catholic mass, as well as they are in chronological order with the first one being at the beginning of the Renaissance. And it's going to take us all the way through to the end. And we're going to be looking at kind of what were the major composers of this style and we'll see what the major composers during this time period were. So that's going to be the objective of the songs in uh, in this episode. And The way that you can go listen to these songs is to go to the link in the description of the episode. There's a link to a Spotify playlist that has not only the six songs that we're going to be talking about here, but also all the songs from our previous episodes as well. That list is starting to become quite diverse and quite extensive. Oh, cool, yeah. So... Um, You know, it's it's a great playlist. Just hit shuffle and almost is like a really weird radio station. <laughs> um, or you can go listen to the specific sets that I've picked out for different episodes. They're in nice, neat little chunks. So make sure you go check that out. And here we go with the first song, the first part of the Catholic Mass, which is... The Kiri, and this is going to be coming from the first major composer of the Renaissance Mass, and that is Guillaume Dufay. Du
3: Dufay.
0: Dufay. So remind me, what, what happens during the Kiri? So the Kiri is, remember how I talked about in the medieval period, they really concentrated on the, um, the worthlessness of man? Yeah. That's what the Kiri is all about. The whole point of the Kyrie is is you know kind of prostrating yourselves before the Lord and saying you know forgive asking for forgiveness acknowledging that we are wretched beings that you know we are nothing without His grace and so um, so yeah that's kind of the uh, the whole it's 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 where kind of the stage is set, Mm. you know, before, before you can properly worship the Lord, you must first um, make it known that you are not approaching on your own merit. And almost in a way, just kind of, you know, saying, please, you know, have mercy on me. Don't strike me down in my, um, in my unworthiness.
3: Mhm. So,
0: that's that's kind of that's where we start off in mm-hmm. in the Catholic mass.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely still hearing a lot of pre-renaissance vibes, all this polyphony. Mm-hmm. But there is there is a little bit, it's not very overt and you'll it, as we get to the end of the set it will be more overt, but there is a little bit of a change in the fact that things feel more constructed i should say it's hard to describe but things do feel more constructed which is nice um there's not there's still not really a hook which like that's not the point Mm -hmm. but it's hard for your ear to pick on too so you know any any people who are new to the podcast who are new to this series you know don't expect to be listening to a pop song right but that doesn't mean it's not to be appreciated
0: Yeah, there's don't don't be looking for verses and choruses or very obvious repeating melody lines. There are repeating melody Mm -hmm. lines, but it's just it's not going to be in ways that it's like you know you're going to be really humming it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and we still have yet to uh, have religious music that is having many overt uses of instrumental uh, accompaniment. Mm -hmm. It. At at this point, they were allowing things like organs and other instruments to be used, but definitely it must be restrained. Mm-hmm. You cannot, you know, go overboard with, and definitely can't have any instrumental passages. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, you know, there were certain instruments that you know were okay. You couldn't just bring any old instrument in.
1: Can't bring in an electric.
0: As well power. as. Yeah, as well as these songs are still being sung in Latin.
3: Mhm.
0: You know, this is this is not meant for everyone to understand. Although something that is changing during this time period is that more and more of the common people because they have the ability to read and to educate themselves, more people are starting to have the ability to understand Latin. Ah. Interesting because that was that was the uh, that was a requirement for higher educated people during the Renaissance is that they had to be fluent in Latin because they needed to be able to um, to read the greats in their original language. It was kind of like it became once again like a business language in Europe. Huh. And so um, it was, you were going to start to have more and more people. Obviously, you know, the, the lower class citizens are still going to be out of the loop they're not going to have access to all of this but one of the something I failed to mention in the previous segment is that maybe the most significant uh, invention of the renaissance is the middle class Oh, where you don't have this either your nobility or your peasant Mm
3: -hmm.
0: where you have quite a large number of people that live in the middle that's why it's called the middle class you didn't have upper or lower middle classes quite yet. But you had these people that weren't toiling the farms every day, but also were not as powerful or as rich as, as the nobility. But they had the opportunities to learn a craft, to be profitable in their business. They had the ability to become a nobleman, even if they weren't born into it. And so... That was um, that was maybe the most significant change to come out of the Renaissance is the development of the middle class. And the middle class people, depending on where their intellectual studies took them, would start to understand Latin. Hmm. And so it's becoming less and less about the church obscuring everything in ritual, that you can't understand what's happening, that now – you know, kind of almost like the uh, the curtain at Oz is starting to be pulled away ever so slightly. And then when the Protestant Reformation happened, it was kind of like that was the, the big yank. <laughs> Pay no attention.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: So um, as far as our composer, Dufay, he is kind of the – he's the first major composer of the Renaissance period. There's – um. There's kind of like a, a big three of the Renaissance, and he's one of them. There's like, he's he's the master of the early Renaissance. Mm-hmm. You have a master of the middle Renaissance and a master of the late Renaissance, mm-hmm. as far as in the Catholic mass. And so he is kind of the, the undisputed leader of the early Renaissance music. He definitely still has a foot in the Middle Ages, but... Immediately you can sense this harmoniousness in the voices mm-hmm. where you you go back and listen to my show and it's very angular. It's very you know, everything is kind of very choppily bouncing off of each other. Where now here everything is very warm sounding. It's it's blending together quite nicely. Yep. 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 So um Ethan, what are what are you and what did you initially pick up when you first listened to this piece? Oh. Or your first, what was your first gut reaction?
2: I think, as with all of the pieces, and Grant kind of already alluded to this, but mm-hmm. this is like the first, the first week where kind of this choral music is like, um, it's it sounds modern, you know, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but I think. The first thing I noticed was in the in the past episodes, whenever they would whenever we would talk about how they were using harmony in the past episodes, it was in like a chord structure way or in a in a scale way. So we would we would say, Oh, they're in like uh Michaud, how he would always go to that weird, kind of diminished chord, you know. it was Mm -hmm. like oh they're all singing they're kind of just singing pretty much stacked chords and then this kind of like what you already said I you immediately notice like kind of the lines going up and the lines going down and they're still singing chords but it has more movement in it and there's more definitive parts and they're singing you know Mm -hmm. and it's it's beautiful and there's something also like there's a simplicity about it and we kind of said this before the episode but like Since it's just voices, you know, (laughs) the good thing is that there's like, it's like the good and bad thing is there's not a lot to talk about, but to be able to kind of come up to this point in kind of choral arrangement, you know, but even for all of the songs, like it just, it's more complicated, but in, in a way that doesn't take away and there's no dissonance, you know? Yeah. This is a nice feast. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. There, and, well, on that same point, there's no accidentals. It's yeah. all in a major mode, which is something that you said that Dame Show did not do, which I didn't really like. I don't think it really fit the way he did it, but that's my personal taste. You know, that's not...
2: They were experimenting.
1: Right. If I'm going to be objective, it's music. it's musically sound. But... Musically sound, no pun intended.
0: Now let's uh, let's let's turn our brains back a little bit. Do you guys remember what melismas were? It was like a little one of our vocab words ah, that we picked up terrible. in the last couple episodes. That's one of the vocab
1: words that uh, in one ear and out the other. I was never good at vocab.
0: So a melisma was whenever they would take one syllable of a word, word? and they would stretch it. Uh, yeah. This is one of those where you have the one of the characteristics of renaissance catholic mass is the shortening of melismas. so you're gonna have more words being sung now they're they can repeat sections that's why we have songs on here that are longer but they're not longer because uh like say in our high middle ages episode where we had our one track that was like 12 minutes long yeah and like the first four of those minutes was just them saying the title. <laughs> so it's like words that's for not a minute for typing, but but for music. Yeah. So we we have a shortening of it. There is this intentional. Um, there is this intentional clearing, especially I think that this this matches up with the fact that more people are able to understand what's actually being said. That the composers. are wanting the words to be heard rather than like when you listen to – in the Middle Ages, even if you knew Latin, there's no way that you could tell what was being said because every (laughs) syllable is being drugged out for 45 seconds. Yes, that's true. If you were to do that in English, we wouldn't be able to tell what's being sung, Mm -hmm. especially when you have multiple voices working against each other also doing that.
1: So… That kind of makes me think, like, what determines the length of a song? Like, is it just from a musical standpoint, like, oh, I need this many minutes to have this musical idea? Or was it deeper, like, this song is more important, therefore it gets more minutes?
0: Um, it, I think it depended on what satisfied the musical uh, need of the composer. So it's just it's I think, like it is today. I think also whatever tune they were borrowing from probably also had a hand in that depending on how long that that tune was probably contributed Mm -hmm. so if it was a longer tune that they were borrowing from then that probably uh, now to clear up a little bit they're not copy and pasting like saying you know like you wouldn't it's not like the same as saying you would take like the 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 melodic structure of Bohemian Rhapsody and have it be exactly this, like it's not a parody in the same way that a weird owl parody Uh is where it's the exact same song, just with different words. Mm -hmm. They're taking it as a blueprint and they're then reforming it into something new. But the, at the very core of it is this other song. Which, by the way, in Du Fais, he's one of those composers where in this Mass, he took his own song. <laughs> and that's what the, uh, the title of the Mass is, is the Se La Face I Pale. That's the name of the secular song that's being parodied. Just when you, put, when you put the title Missa in front of it, that's the Latin word for Mass. And so that's how you know that this is the
1: Mass version of this song that's starting to make sense so mass whatever and then the part of the mass is the naming convention that we're seeing here on the rest of the songs except uh-huh. for the third song and we can talk about that when we get there but yeah
0: yeah okay which honestly i can even tell you right now that's just because whoever wrote it on spotify just did it incorrectly oh dang It's still, it's still, it's still, it should be, if you're going to be completely accurate, it should have MISA in front of it. Wow. (laughs) Rookies. I know. We're here to set them straight. (laughs) I'm
2: going to send them a mean message.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, it would, it would be, yeah, don't, don't think of it in the sense of like, you know, like weird out, where it's you know the difference between beat it and eat it is pretty much the same, except for the different words. Mm-hmm. But it's the same. It's the same beat. It's the same melody. It's the same. Pretty much everything. Um, it's that's not how they were approaching it. Just in the in the sense that you know they're, the the songs that they're taking these from are in completely different styles. Right. And so they're just they're taking the idea of mm-hmm. that melody and then stretching it
1: around to make it fit into this new... Um, into this new so, format. kind of like when an artist does a special live version of a song. Yeah. And it's just... It is the same song, technically, but if you objectively put Let's, them next to each other, it's like there's so many clear differences that it's really a reimagining.
0: Look... Like... Look at something like, um, like how we talk about with some of these cover songs, like with Aretha Franklin's "Respect." Her respect and Otis Redding's respect really? are, yes, technically from the same source, but they're two completely different gotcha. songs. You would never confuse the That's two. True. Think, of, yeah, you would think of it in that way.
1: Hmm. All right, it's it's kind of hard to to mentally understand without hearing the other version but that's Mm -hmm. understandable yeah
0: um did you guys have anything else you wanted to point out about this particular no
1: i am ready for the musical progression to ensue
0: all right then let's head to the gloria the missa proletonium By I'm gonna this is gonna be another episode where I just butcher the way everything is pronounced. (laughs) Um, By Johannes Ockegem.
1: This sounds about right. So what is the Gloria?
0: So the Gloria is when we switch to uh, the praising of God, the the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So pretty much, this is the first part is first kind of setting the stage and just going we are unworthy and then the second part is why we are unworthy because he is worthy and so um, this is just kind of now we have officially entered the worship part
1: Uh, I gotcha
0: so um, we had not done the Kiri when we looked at um, the medieval mass but we had done the Gloria Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious. I didn't tell you guys to do this. Actually, probably would have been good <laughs> to kind of compare this Gloria with Michaud's Gloria to kind of you know see how they how they differ. I didn't even think to say that. Uh, that would have been a great thing to do. I remember listeners. I would encourage
1: you guys to do it and kind of see what conclusions you guys. I remember, to. and I remember I did not like his Gloria that much, but. I think there's a there's like I said, you know, kind of before this segment, that there's a level of sophistication that we're gaining here. And you can hear there's there's implied chords in places as well as just overtly like an overt chord structure. Yeah. And chords are resolving to chords that you'd expect them to go to. Um and there's also mm-hmm. unlike our last song and unlike Dame Show, there's a very genius and really subtle, but really genius use of accidentals in this song. And I actually really like Ooh. it, and I didn't notice it until right now as I'm listening to it. Oh, yeah, I forget that you guys have the ability <laughs> yeah, to, to listen
0: through as we're talking. Technology, I, I, I don't have that luxury just with the way I have everything. We got so. the high tech stuff. So. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh this composer, um Akagem. Oc- mm-hmm. God I I'm, I'm sorry, those of you guys that uh maybe are are patron fans of, of him or from his country. I am I am a simple American yeah, that throwin'. says things American. <laughs> um he is considered kind of like a bridge between Dufay and our next composer, uh Depre he was actually our next composer's instructor they were alive at the same time but he was about 30 years older and he kind of taught him what he knew and then and our the following composer Desprez, took that forward and became kind of like the big composer of the middle renaissance period but you know to say that he was a bridge between the two of the greats does not diminish that he was a brilliant composer. Mm-hmm. So don't, uh, don't confuse that. Um, this was a, another parody that was uh, derived from a, uh, this one was not one that he had written. But one that he had. Wait, no, I'm thinking of a different one. This one actually is not a parody. This is one of the few ones where he actually wrote everything from scratch himself on
2: this
3: mm-hmm. one.
0: That's always impressive. Yeah. So, I was I was thinking forward to our next one. Wow. But yeah, this one this one is a is an original.
3: I really like. I think it's the
0: only. One. Yeah, this one. So. We are moving forward in time now. Right. So, are you guys noticing any evolution in how things are sounding?
1: I'm, well, I'm starting to see, I think, what the music of the Dark Ages and High Middle Ages both were trying to do, which was um, create that kind of meditative atmosphere by not necessarily like good hooks, but good music that had a lot of good moments Mm -hmm. to it that you'd be like wow what great meditative atmosphere this is and i think that um maybe i'm incorrect and like that's my own personal like view of how meditative music is or whatever because like i didn't live during that time but i think this set and you start seeing it with this song in particular and more and more as we go down um That even though there aren't good hooks it's just they're jam-packed with great moments and every you know 20-30 seconds you're just like wow such a good moment wow such a good chord resolution wow such a great use of accidental wow you know even though it's like you don't have the same wow moment over and over and over again and you can't sing back what it was you still get a great feeling from it and that is important in music just as much as memorability is in my opinion
0: Hmm. So. Ethan, uh, I, what were, what were you pulling from I mean, this? I
2: agree with Grant. I, I, I'll stick to my guns. I I like the vibe that this has. Like whenever we talk about more of our modern music, we we always talk about how the songwriting fits really well with the message, and I think this is. Oh yeah. Uh, this is very on point. And it's so and and, it's so and it's I domestic. like how. At the very end of it, I like how they just kind of end on the tonic. Yeah, it's, That's true. And it's it's kind of cliche, but but like, I I wanted it, and they gave it to me. You know. <laughs> right.
1: It's um. Oh, what did I just say to you? God. I said yeah. No, before that, I was making a I you was said, making a point. I agree. No, I do agree, but before that, whatever, <laughs> doesn't matter. It'll come back to me. I said they end on the tonic. Whatever. It wasn't that. It wasn't oh, that. the tonic. But it'll come back to me. So we can
2: move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the vibe. I just really like how they, they just nailed the the mood of the song. Right. right. But, yeah. Again, it's just good songwriting. Yeah. And there's just...
1: Oh, I remember what it was. It's that it's very optimistic. Um, as we listened through like a lot of the um, ancient music and a lot of the Dark Ages music and a lot of the um, High middle ages music, some of it was like intentionally sad. Right? Which it's okay to have sad songs, right? Yeah. I kind of am one of those people where I like the sad songs more because there's just more emotional roller ness But even the happy songs that they like tried to be happy or like have some kind of positive message it didn't come across quite as much and i think what was needed was exactly what is in this song is just a lot of big open together full major chords that just work well and moving in and out of minor but resolving on something nice and homey like c major and that's what they did. So we finally understood how to write happy melodies.
3: As, oh, as yes.
1: Because, yeah, a lot
0: a lot of the Gregorian chants were nope. not very happy. Nope, something.
1: they were not. <laughs> anyway.
0: Guys, we can be happy in church now. Yeah, Yay! well...
1: So that was my important development that I had to pull out of Ethan and didn't help me at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, we can go ahead and move on to the next one. The incorrectly titled uh, Missa Fortuna Desperata credo.
3: credo. Credo.
1: They always start with that, which it's the same song so it doesn't matter. But
0: <laughs> so the credo is the uh, the statement of the creed Mm -hmm. you know i i believe in the father i believe in the son i believe in the holy it's kind of like it's it's going through the prayer of what we as a religion believe Mm -hmm. kind of it's kind of a a recitation of the doctrine
3: Mm -hmm.
0: and um very much a more um a more solemn you lyrically part of the mass Mm -hmm. and here we get to the uh the master of the middle Renaissance mass period, and that is let's look at this name, Joquin de It could be de Prez, des Josquin. Oh boy! I, I don't know,
1: <laughs> Josquin.
0: Many, ma- many ways that you could you could go about that, but I'm sure there's one correct way. Yeah. I'm just not quite sure on what it is. Um. Desprez is usually regarded higher than Dufay mm-hmm. is but um, not quite as uh, well celebrated as the final composer that we we'll look at.
2: So, so what was his thing um, then? What was his, yeah, thing? what was his thing? What made him so what made him so much better than the others?
0: Um he first off, he had a very large catalog. He had one of the largest surviving catalogs. In fact, he was he was so well respected that a lot of publishers falsely printed his name on uh, copies of music so that they would sell better. And throughout the years, they had to start figuring out what was actually written by him and what wasn't. And. He just had a a great control of melody. It was very much agreed that he was also, in the way that Michaud was, he was someone that wrote all kinds of music and was considered to be the master of everything that he decided to write. I'm sure that whenever we get into the other forms of the Renaissance, we'll be looking at him again. Interesting. Okay. And so he was just, he was kind of someone that no matter what he did, he just, he knew how to do it really, really well. So, um, I'm, it's harder for my ear to determine on whether or not he is doing it better than our previous two composers. So I'm going to kind of see what you guys think.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Does he deserve the praise that I just gave him? I, I think that
2: this is definitely more complex than than the last song that we just listened to. Just it, with the so arrangement, just, and it's just yeah. there's more going on, and there's a lot more range. Like there's guys that are just going really high, and yeah. you know, the lines are wider. I guess is a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not just diatonic. So there's some accidentals that he's kind of moving in and out of, but it's not distracting.
0: Um, yeah. One, I I just realized now uh, what was one of the uh, the brilliant things about this uh, this composition in particular. He took this idea of throughout the six uh, sections of the mass, he was starting at a different starting point in the mode. Oh, that's and, fun. And constantly moving the... Uh, because, I mean, think about it. When you're adapting a song, because this is a parody, Mass, mm-hmm. uh, it was not one that he wrote. But it was actually uh, written by our next composer. But he, whenever you're doing that, you can't just use the same melody in every single time. What they're doing is they're taking the melody and using it. And then by the time you get to the next movement, it's been changed in some way yeah. in the same way that symphonies are written, except for instead of, you know, symphonies use four movements and masses use six, but there's usually always a central idea. Like think back to Beethoven, mm-hmm. like in his, um, in his fifth sym- symphony, the ba 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 that idea is used as the underpinning of all four movements of that symphony, but it's not used in the same way. And they would do that with the melodies of the song that they're pulling from is that they would find some way to continue to evolve that melody as it goes through the six movements of the mass. And so his way of doing that is to start at a different tonic point in each of the movements that's cool and that would obviously you know inevitably change
1: the way that it's going to sound that makes a lot of sense and that's actually kind of smart (laughs) because then you don't have to like you don't have to worry about changing things up in weird ways like rhythmically it's easy for something well okay I'll say relatively I would assume easy for something like um, Beethoven's Fifth to just have a rhythm but if you're like transposing into a different major mode then that makes sense because that's how you, that's how you write yeah. stuff like um, negative harmony and how you get the minor versions of songs where yeah it's the same melody but it's also not um, also kind of reminds me of Octavarium everything reminds me of octavarium so that didn't mean anything yeah <laughs> yeah
0: that's 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 kind of the uh, the the big brain type of writing we're starting to get into yeah because it it's easier to write something complex just for the sake of being complex because oh, yeah. you can just write put whatever you want mm-hmm. on there and as long as it's not musically incorrect it can be performed and and at least sound mm-hmm. adequate which is what a lot of the what the medieval period was i you can feel that mm-hmm. they were doing they were they were writing lots of notes for the sake of writing yeah. lots of notes and it worked a lot of the time but it it had a ceiling on how good it could be when you start to have more of these conceptual ideas it starts to really enrich on how deep musically the piece can be. Where, yes, maybe you're seeing less notes, but the less notes are far more impactful. And We're starting to experiment now on what we can do with large form compositions. A
1: good song is not designed, it is distilled. Ooh, we need to put that on. Well, I I stole that from uh, the TV series, You, the Netflix series. Uh, I... I figured you stole it. They were talking about um, (laughs) stories and how like, you know, there was some character that came up with this really just bland story for some movie he was writing. And the main character was thinking, this is completely uninspired, you know, come up with something crazy and then distill it down into something meaningful, right? Instead of like… Because when, when, when you first write songs, and I experienced this when I, like, I first wrote songs, was I was so excited to write something that I didn't care if it was good. And I think that that was the mm-hmm. mindset of a lot of the songs that we heard in the Middle Ages. Like, it was good, but you could see how with the same mindset, you can get something really just terrible really just totally uninspired uninteresting just not even right there's no driving force behind it uh, you just happen to get mm-hmm. lucky with these notes sounds good but you got lucky whereas where we are now like I said you know it, with, with Gloria that it it feels more like architecturalized I don't know how to use the word distilled yeah it feels more distilled
0: Side note, Ethan, do you remember when we tried to write a prog epic in at Dry Gulch? <laughs> uh, I do not. And I think you were you were playing bass or guitar, and I was playing drums. And we tr- we like on the spot tried to write like a nine minute Dream Theater oh, like that's epic. Cool. And it's, and it started off with a in the presence of enemies like groove, and then it we had the. Uh, this like a Nope. Uh, I rem I re- I remember it. And it was just us two. And there was some some dry gulch employees that walked in and were like, Hey, what are you guys doing? We like played like the first like three minutes that we had come up with for them.
1: That's pretty cool. And then we never worked on and then we never worked on it ever again. There was a, <laughs> there was this time where me and one of my best friends in um, middle school did that he had just learned how to play drums and like he was big into rush and everything and i was pretty good at well okay i thought i was pretty good at bass at the time and we wanted to write like we wanted to write the longest song in history which first of all we have like maybe 10 measures of music so that's not even gonna cut it but If we slow it way down, you know, maybe we can make like a, like a doom metal record, right? But, um, yeah, yeah, and it's just, it was so, there were so many ideas that we had that we wanted to fit them all in, and it just became a jumbled mess,
3: right?
0: Yeah, I I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to derail the conversation, but just when you were talking about how you have this, this scope. Yeah of wanting to write the biggest, baddest thing ever that you just, you know, it ends up becoming when you look back on it going, wow, that was really
1: unfocused and had like no direction to it whatsoever. You You got to start with that big musical idea. And so maybe that's kind of, maybe that was not a crutch. Maybe that was a smart thing for these composers to do, to have a theme going through so they didn't end up you know, stepping over themselves and tripping on their own feet trying to write the greatest thing ever because you could write the greatest thing ever, but if you write 15 other greatest things ever at the same time, nobody's going to care. So, I still have that that uh, sheet music in my guitar case and I haven't looked at it for about five or six years. But, it's there. The full epic, all uh, minute and
3: 30 seconds. <laughs> so, that's awesome.
1: so all that to say is, I know that was a side note, but it actually, that makes a good point. Yeah, because I mean, the the thought of having to write
0: a 40 minute mm-hmm. piece, a Catholic Mass with six uh, evolving sections, I'm sure that's going to be very much scrutinized by yeah. the church leaders, that's got to be a daunting task. And you got to, especially as you start to now have competition between the different music schools on who's writing the yeah. best mass. Like that had to be, there's a reason why that that was like the the ultimate test. You weren't a great composer unless you could write a successful mass. It didn't matter what kind of, that's why when I was looking at who all of the great, Renaissance composers were. Yes, we'll talk about some that maybe more exclusively dealt in the secular areas, but all of the great ones were the ones that were great at writing the Mass because it was the most difficult to write. It required the most musical prowess. So – (laughs) <laughs> and yeah just those were those were the ones that kind of rose to the top it's the same composers that would be writing symphonies and operas in the following periods you know those they to be able to write something that's that good that is that long it's the reason also why I find that when I'm ranking uh songs by artists i do do find that the great long songs are the ones that are going to make it to the top of the list because in my opinion i think that it's a greater musical achievement to write a successful epic than a successful hit because it's it's easier to mess that up mm-hmm. because there's so many things that can go wrong the more time that goes by and if you can pull it off then you know then you've done it, which I think will lead me to okay. the next song, which is the longest one of the set. Yep. Which is, I, I forgot to, to pull up what it was as I was getting into it. The Missa Caput, the, the Sanctus. Caput. <laughs> so, what is the Sanctus? The Sanctus is a prayer it is uh, usually uh, translated to holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts heaven and earth are full of thy glory pretty much it's after um, after we go through this this very liturgical, very ceremonial um, part where we're reciting you know, the beliefs of the church now it switches back to a mode of worship hmm and so this is actually a very short passage and yet in this uh section of the mass we have the longest one of the set and I think that stylistically this one does so mm-hmm. many interesting things Oh yeah. Yeah. This this is where this was the one that really caught my ear probably more than any of the other ones. Because there's, this is where our dynamics actually start to be experimented. Yes, with
1: on a grander scale than I like to talk about. You know, instead of just playing your instrument harder, now we've learned how to like quiet the voices almost to like a whisper, but there's still a note, and that is, ooh man, the blend that you get with voices doing that is, ooh man, oh lord. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> so, um. Our
0: composer in this uh, section is Jacob Obrecht, who actually did write the uh, the song that the previous uh, one by Desprez was uh, parodying. Again, parody is not a dirty word at this mm-hmm. time period; it's just the word that they used. Um, this one actually was a uh, uh, mm. an original. So this is not a parody, and neither will the final one. Because now at this point in the timeline, the Reformation has happened. And the the church has put the uh the uh, the kabush or kebab or whatever the phrase is on uh taking secular songs and adapting them into um, into Catholic masses. And so now the really in a sense, it actually presents a greater challenge to the composer because he can't even rely on having a starting point melody line he's gotta he's gotta come up with it completely mm-hmm. on his own, and so I believe that now this is why when we get to these later Renaissance mass composers, it's gonna start to really show their um their ingenuity is that they're gonna have to work a lot harder and i think that it really starts to pay off i think it's these later renaissance pieces that actually start to show really um the the critical mass no pun intended
3: (laughs) how dare you of,
0: of this musical style i think that this is where the genre will really start to um start to reach its, its height. So yeah, the, uh, the dynamics in this piece in particular, that's, I think, what really caught my ear and just hearing like it's going. And then all of a sudden it, it has this brief little pause and then the voices come in louder. And I think that that, mm. that was, that was the first time in this entire music history period where I was just like, Oh, we're starting to really experiment with this now and dynamics for me are one of my favorite musical tools to use and so hearing that because as beautiful as the music has been so far there hasn't been a play with dynamics yet Mm -hmm. and when I initially was searching through what music to use and I saw that this was a 10-minute piece I was just like okay I'm gonna listen through it but it's going to be difficult for a ten-minute piece to, you know, be the one that's going to. It's going to fit in this set, and then I heard that, and I was just like, "Okay, I understand now why we can make this ten minutes because the dynamics are being played with," and I think that that is such a great ingredient to writing a bigger piece. Mm-hmm. Ethan, what what struck out to you about this song?
2: I. <laughs> I hate going last because everyone already takes everyone takes my things. Yeah, well, cause... you should be assertive and talk first. Well, the well, I just I'm I'm like listening to <laughs> the yeah the dynamics in it are I I thought the exact same thing where I was just like oh god it's ten minutes and like yeah thirty seconds of song you know and the way that it starts out did not give me a lot of hope either because I was like and it's really slow. <laughs> <laughs> But I, as I was going through it, yeah, the, like at the halfway point, they're like loud and it's just like, oh, it's so glorious, you know? <laughs> they do a good job of making it feel like the bigness of the moment. Again, I th- to say what I've said about the other songs, it's just the, they're doing a really, really good job, in my opinion, of, of, um, Matching the mood, you know, Mm -hmm. like arranging the songs in a way that complement the words or the moment of the service. Where I feel like the last a couple of the last religious ones that we've listened to have all either been like, "We're gonna be so somber," you know, because we have to be serious in church, or, or in this last one, it was like, "Oh, we're gonna like really try to push the limit," you know, and become and be complex, you know, and. And you lose the mood, you know.
3: Mm-hmm. But I feel like we're
2: at a place now where it's just—it is beautiful to listen to, and and they just do a, a pretty much. I feel like every song is just getting better at capturing the mood of the of the song that they're trying to make.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: One one of the things that I'm learning from both our um, music history spinoff, as well as my personal. Um, uh, deep dive in the dream theater that I reference every episode is that you don't have to have only somber parts or only complex parts or only great sounding parts and optimism. You can have all of that as long as you know how to fit it all together and find that balance. And mm-hmm. this is such a good balance and it yeah. gets better from here.
0: Well, I think that that is as good of a transition as any (laughs) to get into um, the next part, which really – remember how I said that in the medieval period, there was five parts, and now we have gone to six? Yep. So the the Benedictus is this new part because before, the Benedictus and the Sanctum were combined together as one, and – but what ha- what happened was that the sanctum or the sanctus became such a big part. There's a reason why this one is 10 minutes long. This is be- this was notoriously the longest part of the mass and it would get so long that it would start to bleed into the next part where they were you know they were very much at this point in the service they would go to the um, the actual communion. Word with the bread and the wine and the sanctifying of it. That's why it's the sanctus. The communion. Yes, it is. And so what they would do is they would kind of make a break in the middle of the sanctus, have that procedure, and then before it got to the final, uh, the Agnus Dei, it would go into what became the Benedictus, which is really just the continuation of the sanctus. And usually it's, um, it's, it's a recitation of this Hosanna and Excelsius. So what's happening during the Benedictus? Um, you know, I'm not completely sure. This is, this was kind of the fuzziest one to kind of find information of because this is no longer, especially now that the, the mass is more traditional, there's not a in modern day mass a um,
2: like an equivalent.
0: Yeah, it's it's back to being combined, and so this is this was something that was more unique to the Renaissance period, and so it's it's still not completely certain what was being done, at least not what I could find, but that's that's what was happening. So now we can talk about our final composer, not only the the master of the late Renaissance, but as we have gotten forward in time, he has been considered to be the master of the Renaissance in general, and that is uh, the man with the best name, Giovanni Pierluigi de Palestrina.
1: It is a cool name, Giovanni.
0: He's got Giovanni and Luigi and in Luigi. his name. I mean That's true. Luigi no So So this this man is is the is the is the man of the Renaissance.
1: He's the Renaissance man. And
0: yes, he is. He was someone that when the church said um, no more parodies, he took that as a challenge.
3: <laughs>
0: and he said you know, I am going to show you that you can still use uh, masses used from, uh, from previous songs. I'm going to show you how awesome it can be whenever I do it. And he was able, for a brief moment in time, able to kind of bring back the parody mass. Mm-hmm. And kind of just, and it was almost like he was flexing. He was just like, look how awesome it can be whenever you allow this style to continue.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, he definitely like, like this flexes on the dynamics of this song. Yeah. Yes, Regular.
0: this this mass in particular, because we're using the Benedictus and the Agnus Dei both from the same one. We can really almost talk about both of them. Um, it is the most. Famous of all the Renaissance Catholic masses.
1: Mm.
0: It is kind of like whenever you study this at a university level, this is like the one that they go to. Wow. So to like show what a great mass is supposed to be.
1: Wow. So I have to ask do Catholic masses continue to in style follow this trend?
0: I don't believe so. I believe it actually more leans towards medieval uh, style, probably in your bigger cathedrals. Like, you know, if you were to go to the Notre Dame Cathedral or some of these more ones where it's these massive buildings, then yes. But, like, if you were to just go to your average abbey or, you know, your small-town Catholic church, it's going to be much – the majority of them are going to be more medieval than Renaissance. First off, just because to have the personnel to pull it off is much more difficult. Well, so
1: like there, the Catholic Mass did not continue to be a prevalent art form into the no, Baroque.
0: no. This is this is the last time that the that religious music in general is the respected, uh domineering musical form. Once we hit the next period, which is the Baroque period it's pretty much all secular from here on out and no more catholic mass at all nope this is this is this what palestrina does is as great as it gets for the mass this is like i said the critical mass of the mm-hmm. genre this is this is when it reaches its highest glory wow so he can he can also say that he took a genre to the absolute best that it could possibly be.
1: It makes you think. It just <laughs> does. It just makes you think. I don't know what I'm thinking about, but just, wow. <laughs> like, that was so long ago, and it's still the best. Yes, it was. The best. Uh-huh. I mean, it's so good, though. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I'm not saying it isn't, but... <laughs> wow. It is.
0: So... Um, so, yeah, so what are you guys immediately noticing? So now, at this point, we are at the end of the Renaissance. Yeah. What, are, what are you hearing, and how does it compare to where we started, even in this episode? Looking at Dufay at the beginning of the Renaissance, and now looking at Palestrina at the end of the Renaissance.
1: Everything is just... It's like...
0: I think that we've gained
2: touch yeah. Like, we where we started, even kind of going back and clicking on the Dufay song, it's like the first immediate thing is I'm just like, oh my gosh, they start out so loud, you know. And with this, I feel like there's just more tenderness and care in how, how the piece is moving, you know. And we've seen more of that as we've gone from the beginning of the set list now to towards the end, where it just seems like. Every single teeny tiny detail about the song and the performance is is being thought about. It's not just kind of like, oh, well, let's write some stuff down and sing it, you know? It's like, no, sing it really soft here at the beginning and then keep singing it soft. And then whenever we get to this part, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot more. It's almost, like a, it's almost like there's like a producer. Yeah. They're thinking like producers. <laughs> yeah, somebody's got the master face yeah somebody's like somebody's like, no, no, no no we need to come in on this part like this yeah. you know, like they're actually thinking about it like that
3: mm-hmm.
0: it's starting to become more arranged
1: yeah. and they're thinking about more variables there's so many more and I think that that's something we will do as long as music will exist. we will discover more variables that we can use to play with music I mean that's just what we've learned so far and in this renaissance music we've discovered and really gotten to know very well the variables of harmony and dynamics and you're right it's like it's like how the greeks didn't have a word for blue so they thought that the sea was the color of the of wine it's like if you don't know that you can change dynamics then you won't miss it But then as soon as you understand, oh, we can actually in sync change our volume, like it's something so simple like that. It's just glaring you right in the face. But once you see it, it's just everything changes. And that's it's so important. It's what makes the Benedictus of this set so impactful, even though it's only three minutes is because there's a very quiet moments where there's almost nothing there and then like towards the end everything just builds and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it's like it's emotional like it's not just music at this point it's like there's there's like ugh, i don't know you just gotta listen to it guys just listen to the songs <laughs> there's the obli- there's the obligatory check out the and how about song. that Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, and how about the Agnes well, Day?
1: Yeah. The 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 thrilling conclusion. That's true. So let's well let's talk about the Agnes Day in particular, right? Like what's what's happening at this Yeah. Point in the mass. So this is
0: kind of the uh the final uh consecration. This is the um the the, the big the big finish, the the, the lamb of god this is kind of the the response to mm-hmm. the communion because you know this is uh this is it's like summing up everything it's it's we're turning back to the ideas of the Kiri, you know having asking us to have mercy on us grant us peace it also serves as kind of a uh mm-hmm. a release and um you know, it's, it's, it's constantly returning to this, this lamb of God. Um, It's, it repeats twice. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. And then the third time, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. And so it's, it's this, it's this solemn way to kind of finish everything. It's, it's, Really, having something that's so lyrically simple and something that that almost has this tension inherent in the words
1: themselves
0: really makes it so perfect for a composer to really toy with what mm-hmm. it's
1: going to do musically. Yeah, that, that third verse change-up is really what, what gets it in modern music now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like like
0: these words were not originally written to be for music; these were just prayers, but it almost lends itself to musical tension so perfectly and
1: it's oh, it's just this one is just continuing the trend that we've had you know in in the Benedictus was kind of like a uh like a prequel to what we were gonna see, like a preview, and this is the full mm-hmm. six and a half minute you know not epic, but six-and-a-half-minute real-deal composition where, Mm -hmm. like, on a dime, the dynamics will flip to something really quiet. And it will just – it'll make you kind of like – it'll make your ear just get a little bit more interested in what's happening. and It'll make the really subtle, small, tonic, you know – Sounds so much more impactful, or the small, uh, the really quiet uh, major chord. Uh, yeah, how it is is so good. It's just on oh, the extensions. Oh, and there's climbing and stuff like it's mm, and it's not parallelism, you know, parallelism that's a literary term. It's not, Ooh, it just did it again. I'm listening to it, and it just did the quiet tonic again, yeah, but or the quiet third. I should say but there's these moments in this Agnes day where the melody will climb and the harmony will kind of climb with it but it doesn't sound like all the notes are climbing at once like you're going up a piano right it sounds very Mm -hmm. calculated but not calculated like I don't know you know how when you look at a really beautiful building you know where it's like wow this was so well constructed it looks great but in your head you know that there had to be some serious like number crunching going yeah. on this is one of those where it's like you couldn't have just come up with this you had to you had to distill it so <laughs> yeah Ethan
2: yeah i I just love again, I said it in the last one and maybe Mr. Giovanni. Um, I think he is out of out of all the songs that we just listened to, I would say that he would be the king of oh, the yeah. set. Without just <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a lot better than the other ones. <laughs> like and and maybe not just melodically, but like what puts it over the top is like I feel like he has a deeper understanding of music, you know, and maybe that's mm-hmm. due to the building blocks that everyone bef- everyone before him gave him, but he man, like literally the last 30 seconds of this song are the most be- is the most beautiful moment in the entire mm. set in my opinion. Like the na 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 Uh, uh, and just kind of like going in and resolving on the tonic Mm -hmm. I'm excited for whenever we get some more musical repetition because I think if like that's the musical repetition is the last missing piece the the last big musical piece that we're missing uh, outside of the idea of the hook Yeah, the concept of a hook or a theme yeah I mean even we're getting getting uncomfortably close to, I mean, I think they understand theme, but in 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 tandem with, like, a hook um is it's kind of our yeah, concept of, of a theme, but, like, that's why, like, the last 30 seconds, like, you can hear that there's a hook that he just does, like, two or three times in a row. And, and that's where, why it's just like, oh, that's so mm-hmm. good! And then... Yeah, so I literally think the last songwriting puzzle piece that we're missing is the hook. And then we'll, we will be kind of off to the well, races.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would man, say compositionally, yes, but um you cannot discount the power of instrumentation.
2: Yes. I but I think it, instrumentation will cuz we we have instrument we might not have instrumentation in this set, but we had it in in the High Middle Ages with the right
3: with, with troubadours. So it's right, there.
2: But... I just think once once we have hooks and once we have once once we latch on to kind of short uh-huh. repetition, I think that helps instruments. That helps. You're saying Ed, all the
1: pieces are there except for that one. We just gotta. They
2: yes, I'm it. saying. I'm saying we have all of the pieces are on the table
1: except. Well, Except you can go repetition. all the way back to like ancient Greece and Rome for repetition.
0: Not in the Not same enough. way of way. like you. There's there's a difference also between like a like a droning repetition and a like you know you know this is a great hook and that's why you're going to repeat it rather than we're going to repeat this just because we're it. we're
2: still at a point right now where we we can mentally say oh man all these songs are beautiful but if i was like hey can you sing that line from uh sanctus no. he would be yeah. like no yeah. <laughs> no mm-hmm. i I, ju- I mean i just listened to agnes day and the only part that i can remember is the two is the one rep- repetition line from the very end and nothing else about it yeah um mm-hmm. and so that's the only thing that we're missing but everything else is like they're doing the best that they came with the tools that they have. They just haven't figured out the tool of repetition. And once they do, I'm, I'm really interested to just figure out who the first person is that, that really yeah. nails it. Well, yeah.
0: yeah, I have, I have a theory just from my initial purvey through music history. Like there's, there's a specific song that kind of, I feel once we get to the beginning of the Baroque period, I remember that was the first one that I heard. That was just like, this feels like modern music.
3: Mm.
0: Where it's like, I understand musically what's happening here. Yeah. And it feels good. And I, I I know what they're doing. Where even yes, as I'm researching all this, because I don't have the the musical mind as much in the same way that you guys do. It's it's harder for me to pick up on again all the intricacies that you guys are finding. I'm just kind of I'm much more gauging into the atmosphere mm-hmm. and the feeling of it. But I'm like, yeah, there's there's no musical ideas I'm holding onto. I was just like, man, when it does this, but like I'm you know
1: I can't <laughs> I can't pin yeah. onto it. But there are, and so, but well, we're getting we're musical we're getting really close. I feel like that you can pin onto now.
0: This this set is by far the the best oh, musically yeah. Yeah, that, we've that we've gotten was. to so far.
2: I'll also say I so I'm excited for hooks because even you said like in the Baroque and in the classical and the Romantic period, you you have the things that are like ba bum, you know, or the da 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 like lines that are there that are like your main theme are themes, but even how those themes end up developing from a songwriting and from a compositional standpoint is going to be really interesting because that's the first time that we get hooks Mm -hmm. as compositional themes but it's kind of like when did like verse chorus you know like when did that even exist we don't even know yeah good
0: well it'll be a great it'll be a great question or answer to find so um i think that that gives us a great conclusion there so we're going to take another break and when we come back we're going to give our final thoughts about the renaissance catholic mass so stay tuned we'll be right back
2: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our sixth song set from the week uh, from our Renaissance mass music. And this is actually take two because I tried to <laughs> say all these people's names and I could not do it. So go back to the artist page. If you want to remember their names, go listen to the set list. But we just listened to... That is... <laughs> oh, that is cheap. We just listened to... We just listened to Kyrie, Gloria, Credo Sanctus Benedictus and Agnes Day Um, and now it's time for our last segment uh, of the night final thoughts where we um, say how our opinions have changed and we also say our favorite song of the setlist so Grant
1: final thoughts go. I'm very glad that Greta Van Fleet exists and there's two reasons and the it. Okay, I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. Where are you going with this? I was like,
2: <laughs> "This is this is." I'm very generation. interested to see how you I'm tie this to of, Renaissance mass. Grant from the from three years in the future, where we do a Great Van Fleet I, I episode.
1: <laughs> All right, so I'll, there's two reasons, right? One of them is because it, it they show us how far we've come musically, because there's so many comparisons between Greta Van Fleet and Led Zeppelin, right? And Led Zeppelin. Influenced, you know, Metallica, who influenced, you know, Pantera, who influenced, you know, all these death metal bands, who influenced, you know, all these bands or whatever. And we get into this really intense, really complicated, really heavy music, you know. And then Greta Van Fleet comes along and you listen to them and you're like, wow, this is kind of how that heavy music started. And that's how i felt listening to this set over and over again you know because i didn't pick up on what the trend was for the music right and i think that you know as your personal tastes change in music you don't really pick up on the trends that you have for yourself until you go back to old artists and so i'd listen to the whole set and i'd be like i'm not noticing any change and I, you know the next day I'd listen to the whole set and I wouldn't get it but finally I decided to listen to the whole set back to back and when I went from Agnes Day to Kyrie or Kyrie how Ethan pronounces it which is I doesn't matter um, <laughs> you notice that there's such a difference and so I knew that the songs at that point I knew the songs were getting more sophisticated as we went but I'm glad that lucas you mentioned that we were going through chronological order and it made so much sense because the renaissance is that point where information is shared so easily throughout you know at least europe that you can pull off of ideas from the ancient world from france from italy just so quickly and things progress so fast. And this is only a period of like, you know, 150, 160 years, but there's such a quick musical change compared to our previous episodes. And so that's what I mean by I'm glad Greta Van Fleet exists is because it kind of makes you think how far the rock and metal genre has come. Whereas this episode makes you realize how far the music of the renaissance went and the other reason why I'm glad Greta Van Fleet exists is because I could draw that comparison that's my final thought what's oh
0: what's your my favorite, favorite song? song? it's got and what's your to favorite
1: be song? one of the last three but I don't know honestly you could just roll the dice really yeah, pick one. but Agnes Agnes Day probably is it because that was the first one where like as I listened through like I started to appreciate Sanctus more but Agnes Day was the first one where when I heard it the first time I was like oh my lord like there's just like it's good it's music it's emotional it's got parts that grab my attention i like to listen to music that grabs my attention you know i don't care what i'm thinking about or doing at the time when a good part comes on i want it to like demand my full attention that's just the way i am it's personal whatever other people may not like that about their music but agnes day did that to me and i liked that so that's my favorite
2: that's awesome I will. I will say that Agnes Day is also my favorite song in the set. It's, and I. I probably revealed that card in the last <laughs> segment. <laughs> um, but yeah, I. I I'll also tack on Lucas. I thought that the set was really good, but not for the usual reasons. I thought it was good because you both put together a. And, uh, like the service order of a mass but I was more impressed that the you did it from artists that all kind of had a relation to each other but also chronologically I, I was yeah. like what? Because <laughs> <laughs> we would go we would do um, Defay, and and then he'd be like, and actually, right after, right after him was this guy, and then this guy trained this guy, and then this guy did a cover. This cover song that he did was the next guy. I was just like, how did he do this? How does he, how has he made all these connections? I've I've,
0: I've entered the transcendental uh, <laughs> phase of set. I know it's, it's like it's not even about it.
2: You you have you have transcended the set, and you have now started making sets also getting (laughs) like informational segues it's
0: getting scary now
2: (laughs) so yeah so thing that's thing number one is that i was just like holy crap the way that this set was put together was like 5d yeah just about (laughs) um and i'll i i'll tack on to what grant was saying where uh The first time i listened to the set i i was picking up that i was liking the end of the set list better but i didn't know why because i didn't know that it was in any sequential order i was just like oh like i already liked agnes day like coming in i already knew that agnes day was going to be my favorite um but i i didn't know that we were going for like we were pretty much doing a 100 year time travel through the set you know and which makes a lot of sense now but that gave it a lot of really good context and I guess to repeat what I said before I'm excited because it feels like every um, every week that we do one of these episodes it's getting a little bit faster it feels like music is progressing quicker and quicker as we go like for us to I was surprised after hearing Agnes Day and figuring out about the set I was surprised to hear that um, and to notice that there was that kind of 100 or 150 year gap and we kind of comparatively to the ground that we've covered before we that's a lot of things to learn in 150 years yeah. you know like from from where we were with Kiri or Kyrie or whatever to Agnes Day like the touch and how to move parts that delicately and the arrangement skill like you wouldn't think that it's a lot by listening to it, but it is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: it's only going to get faster and, from here. The the time periods are going to get just, smaller and, and smaller. And that's why I'm excited because we
2: we kind of went from ancient Egyptian music, you know, to to this, and it took a long time. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, not not just a long time of episodes, we, but a long time of time. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm just excited for the future and and. And I thought this was an awesome set.
3: Well,
0: thank you. Um, I will say that when I'm initially selecting these songs, I'm not aware of these connections. <laughs> I knew that I had the I knew that I had the uh, the mindset I was going to go chronologically and do the in the order of the mass. But as far as like having those connections, I was like I only found that out after. I'm I'm finding that. I just when I rely on my instinct on what the right song is I'm finding that it's uh it's ended up having much deeper connection than I'm mm. originally yeah. anticipating. And then I and then I go afterwards and I go, well, no wonder this felt right. <laughs> it was because it was meant to be. Um so whenever I had done so this is really my second time through music history, the first time that I went through it kind of more just as a, as a hobby, as a student, just because I wanted to know the story for myself. I remember doing the Middle Ages, specifically the high Middle Ages, and then reading about how the Renaissance is a step further. I remember listening to it with my smaller musical brain and going, this sounds exactly the same. And I remember being very disinterested and very um, let down by the Renaissance I was like, it's yeah. still just more people singing with no instruments, and I, and I didn't get the finer subtleties. And so I kind of always just like, oh, Renaissance. And I remember when I was I was getting ready to come through it here again. I was just like, oh man, I'm very interested now to see how my view of the Renaissance has changed because I kind of saw it as more of a of a holding pattern. It's like I'm just we just need to get through it so that way we can get to the really good stuff with the Baroque period. I I still do think that it's going to be so exciting when we get there. But now, after doing the research for this episode and listening, I was just like, oh, man, this this is the best that we've gotten. And there is so much change from where we had been. I I understand now why it's different and this is This is the best music we have encountered so far, and I'm now very interested to see what the other Renaissance styles are like now that i'm i'm my eyes are open to uh understanding what the Renaissance really was all about and getting more of a context on what's going on in the world at that time it just it all fits together like this mm-hmm. this big old cosmic puzzle and Um, the pieces even as we do these episodes that are in the 20th and 21st century every piece is helping to make the grand picture even clearer it's it's kind of crazy now how we can find connections with this music to uh other artists like you know grant can listen to this music and think of greta van fleet it's it's a it's amazing um, my favorite song was actually the Sanctus, mainly just because that it was that that true shock of listening to that song for the first time. That that emotion has stayed with me. It's the one that I look forward to the most when I listen through the set, because I remember I was listening to it and I was I was going through. I was just like, okay, this 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 is good it's better than where but i'm i'm really hoping that we get some variety in the way things are sounding and i remember that moment happened i was like oh yes that's what i was looking for right there and so just that whole that whole experience of listening to that song for the first time has still stuck with me more so than the other songs have and so that's why i think that that one's my favorite so there we go that is the first episode in our look at renaissance music uh next time i haven't decided yet whether i'm going to do motets or madrigals <laughs> i need to learn what the difference is between them that, that sounds like the coolest uh, concept album ever motets and <laughs> madrigals um so that'll be those will be the next two, and then I'll double check and make sure there's not any other significant musical styles from the Renaissance but yeah this was this was a fun episode to do and uh, thank you guys so much for listening Thank you for continuing to support us for listening for sending us your requests we really do appreciate it we thank you for listening our uh, our our numbers are continuing to grow up and it's just – it's so much fun to do this. I hope that we never we never stop because we've got so much more music to talk about. We could probably never run out of good music to talk about, and that's an exciting thought. If you want to get access to early and exclusive content, there's a link in the description of the episode that takes you to our Patreon page. Um, there's all kind of cool stuff there, and we're going to continue to add more stuff as the year goes on. And, um, also there's another link that takes you to the Spotify playlist. Please listen to these songs. It would be a shame if you got to this part of the episode and heard us go on and on about these songs and you didn't even listen to them. It would be shame on you. So please go check those out and, uh, message us on Facebook, Instagram. You can even leave us a review on, uh, whatever platform you're listening on and let us know what artists you want us to cover in the future. We are dedicating to once a month um, talking about an artist that you guys suggest. So um, make sure that you guys go check that out and be sure to hit the subscribe button because next week at 9am central, we're going to have a brand new episode for you. It's going to be another volume two, which means that it's going to be an artist that we have talked about before and this is one that i'm really excited about this is going to be a fun one we're going to go back to the 70s and just talk about some great rock and roll so make sure that you don't miss that and that's it i'm Lucas. lucas i'm grant i'm ethan keep on listening to good music